wrestled in the darkness of this lonely pilgrim land raising strong and mighty fortresses that I alone command but these castles I've constructed by the strength of my own hand are just temporary kingdoms on foundations made of sand in the middle of the battle I believe I finally found I'll never know the thrill of victory till I'm willing to lay down all my weapons of defense and earthly strategies of war so I'm laying down my arms and running helplessly to yours I surrender all my silent hopes and dreams though the price to follow cost me everything well I surrender all my human soul desires if sacrifice requires that all my kingdoms fall I surrender all If the source of my ambition is the treasure I obtain, if I measure my successes on the scale of earthly gain, if the focus of my vision is the status I attain, my accomplishments are worthless and my efforts are in vain. So I lay aside these trophies to pursue a higher crown. And should you choose somehow to use the life I willingly lay down, I surrender all the triumph, for it's only by your grace. I relinquish all the glory, I surrender all the praise. I surrender all my silent hopes and dreams though the price to follow cost me everything well I surrender all my human soul desires if sacrifice requires that all my kingdoms fall I surrender all Everything I am, all I've done and all I've known Now belongs to you, the life I live is not my own Just as Abraham laid Isaac on a sacrificial fire If all I have is all that you desire, I surrender all my silent hopes and dreams though the price to follow cost me everything i surrender all my human soul desires if sacrifice requires that all my kingdoms fall 
Let all my kingdoms fall. Lord, let all my kingdoms fall. I surrender pray. Father, thank you that you take our surrender. You take our brokenness. You take every broken piece and, and the ashes of our lives, and you build us up in you. Help us to surrender to you, Lord, every area of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our wills, the secret corners of our lives that, that only you know about. Help us to give you everything and let you work in us to rebuild us, to make us new. We come before you this morning with open hearts. Fill us, Lord. Fill us with your word. Lift us with your grace and send us forth with your challenge. We love you and we thank you for your presence with us today. In your name, amen. amen. Today is August 26th. And it's the birthday of a, of a little-known man named Herbert Henry Booth. Few people will celebrate this birthday, and fewer will remember the man who has long since passed on. But Herbert was the son of William and Catherine Booth. William, as many of you may know, was the, the preacher and the founder of the Salvation Army. He was the first general of the Salvation Army and the small ministry he started grew into this massive Christian organization and, and movement. William and Catherine had nine children. Bramwell, the first son, and Herbert, the third son, were poised to succeed their father as the next general of the Salvation Army. Poor Bramwell. Bramwell had everything going against him. He was continually bullied as a child. He suffered from very poor health all throughout his life. He had a slight hearing loss and a debilitating fear of public speaking. Herbert, on the other hand, uh, he was cut for the role. Charming young man, charismatic, splendid showman. He was a fine musician, talented in public relations and, and marketing and administration. If you or I were writing history, Herbert would be the obvious choice to succeed his father as the next general of the Salvation Army. It didn't happen that way, though. The two brothers' legacies couldn't have ended more differently. Here's what happened. Bramwell was happy working in the food kitchens of the ministry and helping his father in London with any management and administrative needs. Herbert. Oh, he always wanted a different lot. He was always looking over his shoulder at his brother. What did he get to do? He was assigned to help his sister Kate build up the Salvation Army in, in France. After two years of grumbling and complaining, he requested a transfer. My brother Bramwell gets to serve in, in, in London. I want to serve in London. 
Okay, his request was granted. He was given charge of England's cadet officer training. Meanwhile, Bramwell was chosen to succeed his father as the second general of the Salvation Army, and his leadership was marked with success through turbulent times. During his generalship, it was complicated by World War I, which threatened the international nature of the organization with salvationists in both England and in Germany. However, he was able to steer a course wisely that offended neither the Germans nor outraged British opinion. He said in his Christmas message of 1915, every land is my fatherland for all lands belong to my father. He proved to be amazingly diplomatic, yet with a single-minded focus on the advancement of the gospel. Uh, the jealousy was too much for Herbert. He wanted to get as far away from his brother as he could. He requested a, tr a transfer to Canada. I want to go work there. It was granted. But he wasn't satisfied there. You know where I really want to live? The U.S. I want to be in the U.S. Well, there wasn't an opening in the U.S. There was in Australia. So reluctantly, he accepted the post. And at this point, he began to battle depression. No surprise. His jealousy and his bitterness started to affect his health. He continued working, but many in the organization were critical, very critical of his leadership. He was accused of promoting social at the expense of spiritual work. Most dissatisfaction concerned his dictatorial leadership. He refused to implement new regulations from headquarters, which weakened the powers of the territorial commanders. And he insisted on choosing his own staff. He wouldn't work with anyone that headquarters sent to him. In 1901, again, his bitterness got the, the most of him. He asked to be relieved from his Australian command. And he said, you know, I'll be happy in Collie, Western Australia. There's, a, there's an army uh, farm for boys and girls training there. That's what I want to do. It was granted. He took on the new assignment, but his discontent got the better of him. It lasted less than four months. At this point, he figured, you know, maybe the only true way for me to be happy is to quit altogether, to disassociate myself from my father's organization and now my brother's organization. He did. He quit. But his resignation was far from quiet. He made a lot of negative accusations about the organization, the Salvation Army, about his brother, his leadership. He slung plenty of mud at the end before he left. And he also wanted to take with him a recruiting show that he had created. Negotiations were long and drawn out, but in the end, his brother Bramwell let him take the video in exchange for some copyrights of songs he had written. Here we are, 1902, he was finally free. He sailed to San Francisco with his wife to start a new life. He was so happy. Here I will find contentment. This is what I've wanted all along. Over the next 20 years, he held crusades. He tried to use the recruiting show he had created to build a new organization, a better organization he dreamed that would far surpass the Salvation Army. He started the Christian Confederacy, an organization that went down in in failure. It no longer stands today, needless to say. It failed. In 1919, his wife died while he was away on a trip. 
He remarried in 1923, and three years later after that, in 1926, he passed away. We look back today at his legacy, and we describe it as one of discontent, bitterness, jealousy, anger, and ultimately failure. And what happened to his brother? Bramwell successfully led the Salvation Army up to his retirement in 1929. Two months after his retirement, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin notified the retired general that King George V had appointed him a member of the Order of the Companions of Honor, the highest privilege in Great Britain. He left a legacy of success a legacy of diplomacy, of strong leadership, of commitment to the gospel of Christ. It's a stirring contrast. How can two people, two brothers, they started in the same household, they were given the same opportunities, the same decisions, the same choices, how, how, how do they end up with such different legacies, such different endings? Well, it wasn't so much about what they did or didn't do, it wasn't about their skill sets, it wasn't about their skills and talents and gifts. If it was based solely on that, Herbert would have been the one to succeed his father. It wasn't about their accomplishments, it was about the choices they made. The choices they made about the attitudes they had. It's been said that God chooses what we go through but we choose how we go through it. One chose an attitude of accepting his lot, of doing his best where God put him in every circumstance, a spirit of surrender. It's not about what I want. It's about the greater good. It's about what God has chosen for me. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to serve him where he has placed me. The other, oh, he was always looking to change his lot, force his will, alter his situation, change his circumstances, pursue his dream, his path, regardless of what God wanted or what anybody else wanted. He was never willing to surrender his own will. Two men, two brothers, they started in the same household and they ended with such stirring, contrasting legacies. That's the name for it, contrast. It isn't without scriptural precedent. God loves contrasts. The Bible is filled with them. Go back to the beginning, Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam, one choosing a good path, the other choosing an evil path of murder and destruction. Abraham and Lot, two relatives, one selflessly gives up everything for God, the other selfishly chooses his own way. Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who traveled very different roads. David and Saul, the first two kings of Israel, one choosing not to seek God, the other choosing to seek God. Peter and Judas Iscariot, two of Jesus' disciples, both of them betrayed him. One chose a, a path of of repentance. He sought forgiveness. The other sought suicide. God is so clear in his word. 
And I love that he always gives us both examples. The example of what to do and how it ends, and the example of what not to do and how it ends. Today we're going to look at another startling contrast, perhaps the most startling one in Scripture. Turn with me in your Bibles or look up at the screens here. Luke chapter 23. Here we find Jesus after enduring agonizing torture at the hands of Roman soldiers, after being beaten, whipped, flogged, spit upon, his face covered in blood from the crown of thorns pressed into his head. Here he is carrying his cross to the place where he would be crucified. And let's read verse 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, here they are, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. We find ourselves with another familiar pattern. As scripture once again provides us a stirring contrast. Two men, they had much in common. Both of them were convicted by the same legal system. Both of them were guilty of their crimes. Both were condemned to die the same death. Both were at the mercy of the crowd. Both were looking at the same Jesus. Their pasts, filled with mistakes. Their present filled with punishment. And their eternal future still to be decided. Hanging in the balance. One on each side of our crucified Lord. We don't know a lot of details about these two men. We don't know the details of their respective crimes or their series of crimes. What did they do? We don't know. 
We don't know about their trials, what took place, how did they defend themselves, we don't know. We don't know about their upbringings, their past, their, their families, their achievements, their relationships, their failures. None of it matters at this point. All that matters is a decision for eternity that each of them must make. We're going to visit each cross today and take a look. First, let's look at the scoffing cross. Here we find the first thief hurling insults at Jesus, railing on him, blaspheming him. Let's look at what he did first. He joined the voices of the angry masses. The soldiers mocked him. The bystanders mocked him. The rulers sneered at him. Hey, me too. I want to get in on this, the thief proclaimed. I'm mad. I'm disgruntled. I've got issues. I've been offended. I want to sling mud too. He joined their cause so easily. Have you ever been to a rally? A really loud one. It's so easy to get caught up in the, in the intensity and the yelling and the chanting and the, the, the raw passion of it that you lose your voice, not literally, figuratively. You, you throw yourself into whatever that cause may be and, and you become one of the throng, one of the crowd. You follow along forgetting if you really truly in your heart believe the cause you're trying to champion. It's so easy to follow the tide of popular opinion. Their voices are loud. Their effort seems endless. Their claims are impassioned. But always remember this. Just because they're loud, just because they're angry, doesn't make them right. Follow what's right even in the middle of the angry crowd doing wrong. He just followed along the crowd. What else did he do? Second, he doubted the only one who could save him. If you are the Christ, as if he, he hadn't done enough to prove it, he turned the water into wine. Lepers were healed at his command. The blind saw and the deaf heard at his touch. The lame walked for the first time ever at his request. The seas put a hand over their mouths when he commanded them to be still. Winds obeyed him. The dead who he raised were now watching him die. Hadn't he done enough? Hadn't he done enough to prove his deity? Don't tell me that thief didn't know. He didn't remember. He heard the stories. Everyone in the region had. He saw the evidence. Perhaps he even witnessed a miracle or two. We have short memories when our circumstances are desperate. How easily we forget what the Lord has done in our lives. How he has moved. How he has answered. How he has blessed God, if you're there, God, if you love me, God, if you care, stop doubting him. 
He's there. He's still on his throne. He's listening. He cares for you and he loves you more than anyone ever has, could, or will. Lose the doubts. Remember what he's done for you. Go back. Go back to the landmarks in, his, in your life where he's met you, where he's met your needs, where he carried you when you didn't think you could go on, when he provided for you when you didn't think anyone could, when he showed up just in time. He's done more than enough to prove himself, to prove his deity, to prove his sovereignty, to prove his love to you in your life as if he even needed to. Remember the landmarks. The scoffing cross, what did he do? He joined the voices of the angry masses. He doubted the only one who could save him. And third, he never owned up to his actions. Till his dying breath, he continued to justify his crimes. He never accepted the repercussions of his actions. If he had, he would have accepted the punishment for his crimes. He didn't. Save yourself and me while you're at it. Get me off this cross. I don't deserve this. I can justify my actions, my choices, my will. Who can I bribe? Who can I convince? Who can I manipulate? Look, there, there's got to come a time in your life when you give up. When you admit you've messed things up beyond repair and no, no effort of your own. In fact, no human effort at all can fix things. You need a Savior. You need the Savior. The only one. He was in the presence of the only one who could save him. Not simply from the pain of death. That was inconsequential. But from the pain of eternal damnation. He was so close to eternal salvation. He had an opportunity none of us will ever experience to accept salvation in the physical presence of Christ. He missed it. He missed it. He wasted it. His bitterness got in the way. His anger got in the way. His pride got in the way. His justification of his actions got in the way. His desire to follow the crowd got in the way. His attitude got in the way. And when he closed his eyes in death, just minutes later, he opened them wishing, wishing he could be back on that cross. Wishing for death. What he would trade for 10 more seconds. What he would trade to go back and take hold of that fleeting opportunity. What a sad story. What a sad legacy. He went along with the angry crowd. He doubted the only one who could save him. And he never admitted to his own sins. And as saddened as we are with that scoffing cross and the thief upon it, his tragic end, as saddened as we are, we rejoice with the stark contrast on the other cross. We turn our attention now to the repentant cross. What did that thief do right? Well, first, he went against the tide of popular opinion. Who in that crowd would dare to publicly support Jesus, who was being crucified? 
that afternoon? Who would publicly admit he was the Son of God? His own disciple Peter, when faced with possible incarceration by admitting he was even associated with Jesus the night before, he, he betrayed him. He denied him publicly. Who would dare acknowledge him as the Son of God at that moment? Needless to say, it wasn't a popular position. It still isn't. That didn't stop our repentant thief. He had nothing to lose. He didn't care about what they thought. He didn't care about what they could do to him at that point. What could they do to him? They couldn't cause him more pain than he was already experiencing. His fate was sealed on this earth. He didn't care what they thought or what they said. He acknowledged the sovereignty of Jesus in the middle of all the insults being hurled. He followed what he knew in his heart was right. What would happen if we lived like that? What would happen if we followed Christ with no regard to what people thought? What would happen if we lived according to God's will and his principles and obeyed him implicitly without cowering to the pressures of popularity, the pressure to conform, the pressure to fit in, the pressure to be just like everyone else. We would live the way God intended us to live. We'd take hold of the abundant life he meant for us to have. That's what would happen. We'd find fullness of life we'd never dreamed would be possible. We'd find favor with God. We'd find fulfillment, contentment, peace, true joy. We'd revolutionize the church. Stand for truth when everyone around you is falling for any lie thrown their way. Stand up for Christ in the face of criticism, mockery, pressure. Choose love in the midst of hatred, slander and anger. Forgive when you're wronged. Befriend the lonely. Love the unlovable. Choose the right path, not the popular one. He went against the tide of popular opinion. What else? He acknowledged his sin and he accepted his circumstances. The confession was spoken loud and clear. We are punished justly, he said. For we're getting what our, de our deeds deserve. He didn't sugarcoat his sin. He didn't deny. He didn't justify. He didn't point fingers. He didn't attempt to blame his past, his upbringing, his relationships. He surrendered. He gave up his will. He gave up the right to uphold his image. He gave up his stubbornness. He gave up his pride. He gave up whatever he was holding on to that was holding him back. He surrendered. Surrender. We don't like that word. In our flesh, we, 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 we don't like anything about that concept. Nothing about us likes surrender. We're all about gaining, winning, claiming, taking, not surrendering, not giving up. We're all about addition, not subtraction. Friend, there will come a point in your life, hopefully, when you realize that what you're holding on to, whatever it is that's keeping you from Christ, will lead to your destruction. 
your fears, your past, your dreams, your hurts, your hang-ups, your relationships, your anger, your sins, your pride, your lifestyle, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's time to let it go before it's too late. The moments are fleeting. And this is addition by subtraction. Give it up. It's like holding on to a cup of water when Christ has the ocean ready for you. This is exactly what our repentant thief did. He surrendered his will with just a few breaths to go. Look, I'm a sinner. I'm here today in this situation as a result of my own hands. No one led me here. No one got me here. I'm a grown-up. I made my own choices. There's no one to blame but myself. I accept responsibility. I acknowledge the repercussion of my actions. There's nothing I can do in myself to reverse my course, to erase my mistakes, to heal my hurts. I, I, I close my eyes to avoid seeing the disgust and disappointment of those around me, but I can't close off my conscience, my mind, my memories. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's where he was. And had his story ended there, guess what? It would have been as tragic as the other thief. He didn't simply acknowledge his sinful state. He went further. What did he do? He threw himself at the mercy of Christ. Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sought Christ's redemption. Lord, make me fit for heaven. Redeem me, rescue me. Not, not from, from this inevitable death, but from eternal death. My sin is going to claim my body, but you can save my soul, Lord. He didn't seek a temporary fix. I love that. We're always seeking temporary fixes. He sought a permanent one. It was too late for his body, but his soul is what really mattered. He recognized that. He saw his sin, and he found his Savior. What a glorious pairing. Beneath the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart, with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. It takes the recognition of both, doesn't it? It takes the discovery of both. If you know of redeeming love, but you don't have any admission of your sin, you'll find yourself to be a judgmental sinner. If you know of your sin, but you don't know of redeeming love, you will find yourself only to be a despairing sinner. But if you know of your sin, and you know of redeeming love, you find yourself to be a ransomed sinner, a sinner saved by grace. And that's exactly what he became. With his confession, with his request, the condemned and dying thief became a saint in an instant. No one had to vote him in. There was no cardinal vote to make him a saint. Just like that. He was a saint 
covered by the blood of Christ just seconds before closing his eyes in death. From a criminal to an heir of God. That's a, that's a, a zero to hero story. What an opportunity both of them had. Two men. In the presence of Jesus at the threshold of eternity. They had the same choice to make at that pivotal moment. How did they respond? One chose an attitude of bitterness, anger, blasphemy, denial, hatred. I'm going to hold on to my pride. He held on to it all the way to hell. He chose. He chose that attitude. Attitude is a choice. Bitterness is a choice. Anger is a choice. The other chose an attitude of surrender. Repentance. Acceptance. And to where did those choices lead? One entered an eternity in hell, and the other opened his eyes and found himself walking streets of gold in the very presence of, of the one who just saved him. What a contrast of choices. A tale of two choices. What a contrast of attitudes. What a lesson in surrender. In the presence of Jesus at the threshold of eternity. Guess what? We're here today. If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you're in that same spot at this very moment. No one knows how much time they'll have left. Twelve people thought they were just going to a movie, a midnight showing last month in Colorado, thinking they had the rest of their lives to enjoy. Little did they know their lives would be claimed that very night. Their lives would end and they'd be ushered into eternity. In the scope of a life, eternity isn't far away. We don't know how many days of us, days each one of us has left. We don't know how many breaths each of us will still breathe. Don't waste another one. Don't spend another minute without knowing where you will spend eternity. The crucified Christ, he still waits. Arms outstretched, nail-scarred hands waiting for you. Hands that were pierced through to save you from the judgment of your sins. You have a choice to make today. Will you accept Christ? Will you accept his free gift of salvation? What choice are you going to make? And if you're here today and you know Christ as your personal Savior, ask yourself, am I living a life of surrender to him? Have I chosen that road? Have I given over to him every area and aspect of my life? Every wish, every dream, every hope, every desire, have I surrendered to him my past, my hurts, my anger? Have I surrendered my will to him and sought his instead? Or am I holding out, holding on, working for my way, forcing my will, my dreams, my way, still trying to manipulate and turn and twist and spin to get what I want? 
Are you joining the disgruntled doubters, constantly complaining about your lot, trying to change your circumstances, trying to force your will and ignoring the work that God is trying to do in your life? It doesn't work. Remember Herbert Booth in your life. How many times did he think he was changing his lot for the better? It got worse and worse and worse. Every time he thought, that's it, I finally got what I wanted. Now I'll be happy. It didn't satisfy. It never does. It never will. Only living in surrender to God's will for your life will satisfy. The fact of the matter is that God has chosen your lot. He knows better than you do. Stop asking why and start asking what. What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to learn from this, God? Stop, stop trying to frame what you want as God's will. Start wanting what God's will for your life already is. The choice is yours. The attitude you have is a choice you make. Living in surrender to God's will is a choice you make. Choose right. Choose well. Choose wisely. Stop holding on to something that's only going to bring you down. Give it up. Give it to Him. Put it at His feet and leave it there. Find freedom, joy, and peace instead. We have a God of instead. We have a God who offers an exchange of something far better. He's offering you an exchange today. Take it. Surrender it all to Him, and He will give you so much more. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond your dreams and expectations. If you surrender. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to come before you with empty hands. We don't want to hold on any longer to what we've been grasping so tightly. We want to let go and let you fill our hands with you, with your work, your ways, your will for us. Thank you, Lord, for the contrasts you provide us. Thank you for showing us the legacy of a surrendered life, a surrendered choice. Give us the right attitude in every circumstance of our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us to choose the right attitude. Help us to live in obedience and in full and complete trust in you. Help us to live surrendered lives. We throw ourselves at your mercy. Give us strength. Help us to, to always remember. Remind us, Lord, that you know better than we do. You have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. We rest in you, Father. We trust you with our lives. And we thank you. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen.